ברוך שהחיינו וקיימנו והגיענו לזמן הזה. We're starting a big endeavor. Mi Hashem, with Hashem's help, we're going to go through the whole Tanya, at least on one level. We're going to go through the whole Tanya. As you can see here, there's a, the, the Tanya map, which is a sort of a representation of the flow of the chapters from 1 to 53. It's a 53-chapter book. And um, obviously... When you're studying 53 chapters at rapid pace, there are certain uh, details you're going to miss. But uh, consider this like uh, the helicopter view of Tanya. And then after we do the helicopter view, a year from now, you know, then you, know, you can go down on the ground and explore sort of uh, in detail. And sort of imagine like when you're flying over a city and you can sort of see the contours of the major areas. Here's where the, the water is and there's the forest. There's the, uh, oh, I can see the stadium. I can see, uh, I can see the airport. You don't make out details. You don't make out uh, individual cars or certainly not people. Uh, but you see the, the major shape of things. So that, that's basically what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the big ideas, the big concepts, and, and most of all, how the big concepts relate to each other and the, the connection, how we go from one big idea to another big idea. Okay, so we're going to talk about big ideas and the flow of those big ideas. So far, so good? Okay, now, let me ask a question, just by show of hands. Who here has learned Tanya more than once before? in your life? About half, okay? <laughs> Who's learned Tanya, but maybe haven't gone through it more than once, or maybe haven't even completed it, but you've learned some Tanya? A few people, okay? Who never learned any Tanya at all? Okay, even more people, okay. So you see we have a, a lot of different levels of familiarity here with, with the text. So <clears throat> what I would like to ask us to do is whatever familiarity you have, let's put it aside and let's just explore it as if it's the first time. So those who are really learning for the first time, it'll really be your first time. And those who are learning for the first or second or third or tenth or hundredth time, let it be new as if it were a first time again. Does that, does that sound good? Okay? All right. Um, another thing I just want to establish is that I don't want this to be a lecture. I would like it to be a discussion as much as is practically possible when there's one of me and 50 of you, which is kind of unfair odds, but at least I have the microphone on my side, so that sort of equalizes things a little bit. What I'm saying is... I want to talk about these ideas. I'm not just here to present the ideas. I want to talk about it and make sure we get it and we know what it looks like in real life. Okay? Which brings me to another point. <clears throat> Tanya is a book of Chassidus. What is Chassidus? Some people translate Chassidus. Chassidus is Hasidic thought, which is basically <laughs> defining the word with the word itself. So let me give you a... Uh, my own definition. My own definition is like this. Chassidus <clears throat> is a worldview and a way of life that uses the most mystical, spiritual, esoteric concepts of the secrets of the Torah, the Kabbalistic sector of Torah study, and shows us how to apply them in our day-to-day behavioral and emotional life. So we're talking about the highest of the high and also the most practical of the practical at the same time. Which is why, I just said, when we talk about any of these ideas, let's really talk about them, let's discuss it, let's make sure we know what it really looks like in real life. If we only know what it is in abstraction or in its archetype, we're not going to be able to apply it. And the point here is application. So does that, does that sound like a fair proposition? Okay, let's make sure we 
understand how, not just what the idea is, but the application of the idea. And that will come through the discussion. Okay, hopefully we'll feel com comfortable enough to do that. And if the video proves to be an impediment to that happening, I will get rid of the video. Because I would prefer there to be real discussion than there to be this video. Uh, if we can have both, we'll have both. All right. Something about the format of the class. What I would like to try to do is I would like to try to go through a chapter a class. But that would mean 53 classes. That's over a year. So in actual execution, probably a chapter or class will be a goal, but sometimes we'll speed up and we'll do two or three chapters sometimes. Um, what else do I want to establish as sort of uh, introductory remarks? Okay, I'm not sure. So let's let's just let's just jump in. All right. Um, let me tell you <clears throat> a little bit about this book. Who wrote it, when he wrote it, why he wrote it. The book was written by the Alter Rebbe, Rebbe Shner Zalman, who was the first Rebbe of Chabad. He was the student of the Magid, the Mezritcher Magid, who was the student of the Baal Shem Tev. So we're talking about the third generation of <clears throat> Hasidism. We're talking about the generation really from which all the different various uh, Hasidic dynasties come forth. The, the Baal Shem Tev had 6D students. Uh, obviously the Baal Shem Tev influenced many, many people, but 60 <laughs> actual official disciples. And his successor, the Magid, had double, he had 120 disciples. These 120 disciples were the all-stars. I mean, we're talking about people like Levi Yitzchak Berdechever. We're talking about Reb Zusha, Reb Melech. We're talking about the Balaflor. We're talking about the greats. And the Alter Rebbe was one of them. And each of them had their own approach to the Baal Shem Tov's teaching. Their own approach to Chassidus. The Alter Rebbe had his own approach. And you know what he called his approach? Want to take a guess? Chabad, right. Yeah. So that movement that you know of called Chabad, or that place where you get kosher food when you're on vacation called Chabad, it's actually, it's not a movement, it's not a uh, outreach organization, it's not a social services organization, it's actually a school of mysticism. Chabad is a school of mysticism. And uh, it was started in the third generation of uh, Hasidism by one of the 120 disciples of the Magid. Now, why did the Alter Rebbe call his approach Chabad? What is Chabad? It's, a, it's, a, it's an acronym for Chochma Binadas, which are the three faculties of the intellect. Why, why did he call his approach Chabad? So, you, you know when... Uh, you go to the gift shop in Israel and you have to buy a gift for uh, Aunt Gladys and you get the little dancing chassid with the violin, you know. So that's the stereotypical chassid, right? That's the chassid from all the Martin Buber stories. All right, but that's not the Chabad chassid. It's a, it's a, it's a genuine stereotype, but it's not a stereotype of the Chabad chassid. Um, the... The other school of Hasidism, which was um, more, let's say, more proliferated, was the emotional school. The emotional school is that which probably you're more familiar with through cultural osmosis. You know, the happy dancing Hasid, the, um, the ecstatic uh, prayer and the, uh, the joy and the, uh, the excitement, that kind of thing. Okay. And, and it, it's an oversimplification, but it's an oversimplification of a real thing. The stereotype exists for a reason. Okay. But it's not Chabad. If you want to stereotype Chabad, this model that the Alter Rebbe uh, started, it wouldn't be a happy dancing guy. It would probably be somebody sitting there and meditating on one deep thought for six hours. But that wouldn't make a very nice figurine for Aunt Gladys in the gift shop. So we do the little emotional chassid. But this is the intellectual chassid. The intellectual chassid means 
that through the study of mysticism and meditation upon those kinds of meditation here means personalizing it, taking the abstract ideas and making them, owning them, <laughs> making them your own. And then coming away with an emotional takeaway that it, it informs our behavioral choices. So basically intellect, emotion, behavior, right? So what I study and I understand and I take it to heart and it has an emotional takeaway and then there's a behavioral outcome. As opposed to jumping straight to the emotional excitement, this is let me generate a very focused, very deliberate emotional goal based on what I'm processing intellectually. And that was the Altadeva's approach. So in other words, what you know, what you understand, what you process, what you integrate on an, on a, on an intellectual level, this will change you. This will change you on every other level. But it starts with information. There's a difference between information and inspiration. Information means it begins with an idea, but then it changes who you are. Information has the word form. It, it forms you from the inside. I mean, that's at least the etymology of the word. Okay. Now, within this approach, so far so good? Okay. Within this approach, the Altarebbe wrote a book. The name of the book is Tanya. Which is why the Altarebbe is often referred to as the Balha Tanya, the author of Tanya. Okay. What is Tanya? Let me tell you first of all what it is not. And why I'm going to tell you what it's not is because I think it's a popular misconception. And tell me if this is something a misconception that you have, or you, on some level, um, are familiar with. That Tanya is sort of the encyclopedia of Chabad Hasidic ideas. Ever had such a concept or a misconception? I already gave away that it's a misconception. So let me tell you why it's not an encyclopedia. First of all, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't have everything there, not, not explicitly. There are other books of the Altadeb's teachings. And there are ideas that are treated elsewhere that are not treated in Tanya. So that's first of all. But second of all, how is an encyclopedia organized? Right. Is there an organic flow from one article to the next? No, it's arbitrary. It's an imposed order, basically organized by, by alphabet. So there's no real uh, relationship between Antarctica and an aardvark, even though they're both in the book of A of the world book, right? Okay. So it's not an encyclopedia because it's not organized just by let's get all the information we can and um, you know put the files somewhere where we can look them up later and find them out. It's not a reference book. What is it then? So the Altenovit tells us in his introduction Do I have? see there, the, uh, probably can't read it because it's so tiny, but there's a box for the title page and there's a box for the intro. Here's the same thing, by the way. This poster is the same exact thing as the PowerPoint on the wall. In the introduction, the Altadev explains why he wrote the book. He says that everybody's coming to him for personal advice, Yechidus, one-on-one audience, and that it's impossible to meet with everybody and give everybody the time that they desire. Furthermore, a lot of times, two different people will come with the same exact question, and he'll have to repeat the same advice for two different people. Even furthermore, sometimes the same person will come twice with the same question, and he'll have to repeat the same advice 
to the same person at two different junctures of that, in that person's life. So the algebra says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all the questions, all the answers that happen when we do these one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, and I'm going to put it in one place. And you're not going to have to come to me and visit me one-on-one. -on -one. You're going to get it from the book. The Rebbe Rishab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, said that to learn Tanya is to have a one-on-one -on -one audience with the Alter Rebbe. It's not instead of meeting one-on-one -on -one with the Alter Rebbe, it is meeting one-on-one -on -one with the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe created a book that gives us the opportunity to go into Yechidus, to go into a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a mentor, with a guide who understands us, who sees our souls, and, and, and can map out a path in life for us. Now, based on what I just told you, based on what I just told you, you tell me, if you had to characterize this book as informational or instructional, would you say it's more informational or more instructional? Sure, it's more instructional. These are the questions that people are asking. What do I do now? How do I deal with this? How do I deal with that? So this is instructional. Now let me ask you something else. When a book is instructional, like you buy a a bicycle for your kid online and it comes in a box and you open it up and it's a bunch of parts and then there's that sheet that you unfold like this and it's instructions right or let's say you're preparing for Shabbos and you're making a new dish and you have your recipe you open up your cookbook that's instructions relating to this okay you followed instructions before when you have instructions, when you have, whether it's a, you know, directions for putting together a bicycle, or it's a recipe for uh, making uh, a new kugel, or uh, remember the old days before the GPS when someone would write you directions how to get to a certain place, right? Okay. So when you have instructions, let me ask you this. Is there a, is there a method... Or is there a reason or an organizing principle behind the order in which the information is presented? Yes. What is the organizing principle behind the way the information is presented in a set of instructions? Sequentially, right. And the result's going to be at the end, right? Okay. So, an encyclopedia is just a bunch of information with the files put in different places, but it's marked so you can go find it when, you know, when, when you're interested in learning about that particular subject. But an instruction book has a very organic flow. In fact, I would even say an, an intuitive flow. What would be the intuition? It would be, if it's really instructions, like let me just, let, let's play a game here. Uh, let's say I had a new recipe, and I would say to you, um, look, there are ten steps in this recipe. Uh, two of them, I'll just tell you two of them. One is um, preheat the oven for 450 degrees. The other one is um, put the icing on the cake. So you haven't seen this recipe, right? But could you just guess which one of those do you think comes first and which one of those do you think comes later, right? How'd you know? How'd you figure it out? You didn't see this recipe. How do you know? It's intuitive. If it's a recipe, if it's instructional, there's, there's, an, in, there's an, intui an intuitive or organic order to things. Of course you preheat the oven first. Of course you ice the cake last. So for instance, if I were to say to you, just as an example, just as an example here, um, one of the chapters in Tanya says that um, if you want to feel something, you have to meditate on the greatness of God. That's one of the chapters in Tanya. Now, I'm not going to tell you which number, and you're going to see why I'm not telling you which number chapter it is. There's another chapter that says, if you're meditating on the greatness of God and it's not working, here's the fix, here's the troubleshooting uh, fix for that. Now, let me ask you something. 
I'm not going to tell you which chapter number is the first thing I told you and which chapter number is the second thing I told you. But you want to guess which one of those chapters comes earlier in the book and which one comes later in the book. <coughs> is it evident to you? Is it apparent? The first one comes first. Right, because it wouldn't tell you, well, if you're meditating and it's not working, here's what you do. If it didn't already tell you to go meditate, and this is what's supposed to happen when you meditate. So, there's a very intuitive flow to what's happening here. So, since this is the Al-Tarebbe taking what are essentially regular questions, regular um, advice and counsel that people seek, and codifying it into a book, it really, it takes on a very natural flow of, here's what you got to know first, because here's what you're going to do first. Here's what you're going to know next, because here's what you're going to do next. Furthermore, it's going to deal with problems as they come up. Therefore, follow this, there are problems that we'll solve later in the book that are high-level problems, they're problems of such a high level, you didn't have that problem earlier when you did not yet have an earlier solution. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes there's a problem that I don't have until I've implemented a certain solution, and now, on my new level, having implemented a solution, I find a new problem that I didn't have before, which is good. That's growth. So once you study Tanya in this manner, you'll see how it is a very clear instruction manual, how the flow of subjects is intuitive, and how it's working toward a result. Now, if you were baking a new kugel and following the instructions, how do you know in the end that you follow the instructions properly? Hmm? Well, that, that, by the way, where do you think the, the expression, it's a, it's a figure of speech, but the proof is in the pudding. What, what does that mean? You eat the pudding. By the way, why do Galatia cookbooks always call kugel pudding? Why do they, have you ever seen that? Well, it's not like pudding. Okay. Maybe I don't know what pudding is. Okay. The proof's in the pudding. Okay, so if you follow the instructions for the uh, mushroom onion kugel, you're going to have a mushroom onion kugel. If you follow the instructions of Tanya, what are you going to get? What are you going to have? So here's the thing. In this particular case, you're the project. <laughs> There's a vort, a chassidish vort. Why does Hashem say to Odom, Nasa Odom B'Tzalmenu, let's make a man? Yeah. It's a famous question. Theologically, it seems like a little bit confusing. Let's, <coughs> a plural, who, who's Hashem talking to? There's all chassidish vort, that this is what Hashem says to each and every one of us. Together, let's make a person. That's our project. And each one of us was given a lifetime to pursue our own growth as our project. So, this is the instruction manual that's going to take us intuitively, step by step, through the process of achieving perfection. Now that word perfection is one that we're going to talk about a lot because there are many definitions of perfection, and we're going to define a very specific type of perfection that we're pursuing. But for now, let's just say, this is going to allow me to get it right. If I follow these instructions, I'm going to have the perfect kugel. I mean, I'm going to have my perfect self. There's no such thing as perfect, somebody says. By the way, this is good. Now we're getting some interaction over here. You know, there's an old joke. Somebody said, uh, when I was a kid in school, they used to tell us, practice makes, makes perfect. Then they told us nobody's perfect. So I stopped practicing. So there's no such thing as perfect. Okay. Let's talk about that. Like I said, perfect has many definitions. Perfect what? Perfect what? Now there's a little bit foreshadowing or in the modern parlance we call this spoiler alert. 
and I'm going to give away a little bit of the suspense here. But one of the great distinctions, when, I mean, we're going to get to this later, but I'm going to give it away already. Is that okay? Do you mind if I kill, kill some of the suspense? It's all right? <laughs> um, one of the major distinctions we're going to learn as we go through this process is there's a big difference between who I am and what I do. Who I am is my insights, the way my brain works, the way my emotions react to things. And I, and I don't have a whole lot of direct control over that. Uh, but then there's my behaviors, the choices I make, how I exercise my free will. So can I be perfect? Perfect purity of mind and heart? No. And not only I don't think I'm going to be, I'm not even distressed about the fact that I won't be. So I'm not going to be perfect. But with the right coaching, with the right system, I can learn to do perfect. I can learn to do perfect. Is the word really we're looking for like more tikkun that our whole entire life is in like a like a spiritual rectification of how we were born and and how we turn out? That's kind of what you're saying. Is that it's not perfection so much as fixing ourselves? Um, yeah, I'll repeat the question. My, the question was to my understanding: Is the goal perfection, or is the goal just to? Uh, you use the term tikkun or rectification, uh, to, which I, I'm assuming you mean, mean, means to fix certain things that are important in this lifetime to fix. Um, there is such a concept, but no, we're, what we're talking about here is perfect, objectifiable goals. So there is such a thing as the subjective tikkun, that you know, a person came to this world for this one mitzvah, they don't know what it is, and there is such a concept. But right now, we're talking about something that's not subjective, we're talking about something that's objective. Objective behavioral criteria. And the reason it's objective is because they are behavioral criteria. I can't tell you how to see reality. That was, that's, that's the way your mind works. I can't tell you how to feel about reality. That's the way your heart works. But I can tell you how to get yourself to make the right choices every time. And that's what the book focuses on. In fact, again, another spoiler alert, but the real name of the book... The Alter Rebbe didn't call it Tanya, he called it Sefer Shalbeninim. The book of the intermediate. And what's a Benini? A Benini is, again, I'm giving away here the, uh, the exciting uh, reveal from chapter 12, but the Benini is somebody who emotionally is conflicted, but behaviorally is perfect. He says, you don't know how much work goes into looking this pretty. <laughs> it looks great. It looks beautiful from the outside. But you don't know how much work I'm doing on the inside to get these results. And that's what the book's about. That work that it's going to take on the inside to get those outside results. Okay. So let's... Let's try to discuss chapter one and um, just work with me if there's anything here uh, that doesn't make sense or you want clarification, just please speak up right away. Okay. Chapter one starts like this. Chapter 1 starts from, uh, with a passage from the Talmud about the soul before the birth of, before your birth, before you were born. Your soul in heaven took an oath. And the oath was you promised to be a tzaddik and not to be a rasha. And, and furthermore, even if the whole world tells you you are a tzaddik, don't believe them. Believe that you are like a rasha. First thing we try to figure out is what's a tzaddik and what's a rosh. Now you can translate them in English, but I don't like to because tzaddik is a righteous person. A rosh is a wicked person that doesn't do justice. What we're going to discover 
not in chapter one, but again, I, I'm going to sort of reveal things way ahead of time so that you have, you make a space for it in your brain. We'll make a file for it now, and then we'll go into it more in depth when it actually comes up. Um, <clears throat> taking a lot of the fun out of this. I'm, take, I'm, I'm taking all the suspense out, but I, what we're losing in suspense, I think we're gaining in clarity. So I'm hoping that this will be a, an acceptable way to go through it. Um, Righteous and wicked doesn't sound right. Doesn't do it justice. Remember we're talking about insides and outsides, who you are versus what you do? You know what a tzaddik is? Somebody with perfect insights. Doesn't just mean that they end up making the right decision. That means they don't even have the impulse to do anything less than holy. You want to find out if you're a tzaddik? It's a very simple home test you could administer to yourself. For 24 hours, any impulse, any urge that arises, immediately, without filter, just act on it. Just do it right away. And if after 24 hours, nothing but mitzvahs come out, <laughs> then you're a tzaddik. Tzaddik doesn't need... Impulse control. A tzaddik doesn't need inhibition. Because a tzaddik only has holy impulses. That's what it means to be perfect. Okay. What's a rasha? Again, you don't translate it a wicked person. Because once I tell you what a rasha is, you're not going to want to call it a wicked person. A rasha means somebody who doesn't control their behavior. They don't control their behavior? What do you mean? How often? What difference does it make how often? What if I told you, um, I just flew in from Detroit. I didn't sleep last night. But um, let's get in the car and... Let's drive uh, eight hours to, to Montreal. Let's go pick up some Montreal bagels. And I'm driving. I didn't sleep last night. I'm going to drive. And don't worry, I haven't fallen asleep at the wheel in like ten years. Does that inspire confidence? But it, I've had a ten-year streak. I'm telling you, I'm doing really well here. You say, listen, when it comes to falling asleep at the wheel... I want a guarantee. I, I want somebody who says it won't ha it's not happening. It's not shy. It's not possible. There's no way it's happening. Don't tell me there are very low odds of it happening. So a Russia is merely somebody who doesn't have behavioral control. To what extent? I don't know. To any extent. How often do they sin? I don't know. However often they sin. The point is, there's either you're in control or you're not in control. I crash my car once every 10 years, or I crash it five times a day. Well, what difference does it make? I'm not in control of my, 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 my behavior. So a Russia merely is somebody who's not in perfect control of their behavior. Now you can understand why, why we don't want to translate that as a wicked person. Because once you understand that definition for Russia, well, think right away, what category do most of us <laughs> identify with? And then there's the Bainani. The Bainani is the person who has, has, has impulses like the Russia and has behaviors like the Tzaddik. Doesn't say any of this in chapter one. In chapter one, it just says, we gotta find out what a Tzaddik is, we gotta find out what a Russia is. Oh, by the way, there's this third category called a Bainani, and we really don't know what that is. And if you wait for 12 chapters, you'll find out. Okay. What it does tell me, what it does tell me in chapter 1 is that the key to understanding these categories, Tzadik, Rosh, and Benini, has something to do with the Lurianic Kabbalistic doctrine of the two souls. That it does tell me in chapter 1. 
in Chaim Vital's Eitz Chaim, he, he was the premier disciple of the of uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Gloria of the Arizal. He writes that every one of us has two souls. It's based on a verse, verse in the prophets and Yeshio and Isaiah the prophet. That we each have two souls. And if you understand this concept of the two souls, then later on we're going to go back and we're going to define Tzadik Rashabim. What are the two souls? In chapter 1 it only tells you the first one. It doesn't tell you the second one. The end of chapter 1 is a cliffhanger because it only told me the first soul. It says the first soul is the enlivening soul. A lot of times we refer to it as the animal soul, but it actually doesn't even call it that in chapter 1. What is the enlivening soul? Survival impulse. The drive for self-perpetuation. Eat, sleep, procreate. Which, understandably, is why it's often called the animal soul. And, and as such, its entire modus operandi is selfish. It's got to be selfish because it's about self-perpetuation. So it is single-mindedly selfish. Not evil. It's not trying to hurt you. It's just if you get in the way of its self-perpetuation, you will get mowed down. Who's an example? I don't mean a name of a person. What category of person is an example of somebody who's a total personification of just this soul, just this drive? baby. A baby feels no guilt. If he wakes up at three in the morning and is hungry, he will scream and wake up the entire house with no guilt. Baby, how selfish can you be? You have to wake up everybody because you're hungry at three in the morning? But why are babies that way? Why did Hashem make babies that way? To get their needs met. Survival. By the way, why do we learn about this soul first? Many different reasons are given, but one of the reasons is because this is the soul that we get first. When you're born, you have this drive that is concerned with me, 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 me. Am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I wet? Am I dry? Am I cold? Am I hot? Again, it's not evil. It's not trying to be bad. It's just totally self-concerned. I'm going to do what makes me feel good. It's not immoral. It's amoral. Morality doesn't come into the picture. Just like you can't lecture an infant about, do you think that's a considerate thing to do, to scream at three in the morning at the top of your lungs? Well, it's not about considerate or inconsiderate. It's just, it's not... Not a criterion yet. So that's the first soul. <clears throat> that's the soul. You see here, chapter one, two souls. That's the soul that we are most in tune with from the very beginning of our life. That is the soul that. Um, the body is most aware of. The body and this drive are very much interlinked because after all, it's there for self-perpetuation, which let's define what self-perpetuation means. It means physical self-perpetuation, survival. My body should stay alive. And then it sort of sometimes grows beyond just getting my needs met. Sometimes it's about you know, not just what my body needs to survive, then it sort of gets creative and figures out what my body would like in order to have pleasure, but it's all sort of part of the same spectrum. Selfishness. Not trying to be bad. Yeah, please, say loud. Do Gaim have two souls? So, first of all, we didn't learn about the second soul yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> no, but that's fine. The idea of a second soul is a uniquely Jewish concept. So, the soul that we call the animal soul is actually a human soul. 
We call it animal, but it's not the soul that an animal has. It is animalistic in the sense that it wants to get its needs met. Now, the truth is there's a third soul that we don't talk a lot about in Tanya, called the nefshasichlis, the intellectual soul, and that all human beings have as well. It's not uniquely Jewish. That's a third drive. You don't hear a lot about that. People who never learned Tanya are looking at me like, okay, fine. And the people who have learned Tanya are like, what? I never heard this thing. You're making that up. <laughs> I saw. I saw the look. Um, so let me put it like this. I didn't talk about the second soul yet, but, okay. Let's just say like this. The first soul is about self-perpetuation, survival. Me, 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 me. The second soul, which I didn't want to get into today, but the second soul is the exact opposite. It's about selflessness. Selflessness in the sense of, I want to be at one with the all. I don't want to be a separate entity other than God. I want to become absorbed in the great light. So total selflessness just want to be at one with Hashem. And that drive, by the way, has a name. It's called the godly soul. Do you think it's even possible for there to be a conversation between the animal soul and the godly soul? One of them is speaking about my physical needs, my, my bodily comforts, what's good for me, what enhances my existence, that's one of them. The other one is a totally different worldview, just a totally different pair of eyes for reality. How can I surrender all of that? How can I transcend all of that? How can I lose that and shed that and, and, and become one with Hashem? They have two totally different languages. So there's this shuttle diplomacy that goes on inside of all of us, and that's the third soul, the nefesh asichlis, the intelligent soul. The intelligent soul is concerned with truth, with philosophy, with ideas. And therefore, it can take the desires of the animal soul and translate them into ideas and tell them to the godly soul. And it can take the spiritual uh, desires of the godly soul and it can translate them into... Um, a language that the animal soul can relate to as far as, you know, the animal soul relates to the idea of desire. So it sort of translates that uh, with using a common language. And that's the decision-making process. How do you think we actually, remember, remember the whole point of the book is behavioral perfection, making the right choices. So how do you think we make the right choices is we have to play this shuttle diplomacy between these two opposite drives. Because on their own, they're not going to work out a compromise. <coughs> So in answer to your question, um, the, the, there, there's a third soul which is actually universal and all human beings have it. In fact, when we talk about the Tzelem Elakim, the godly image which is in every human being, it's actually talking about the Nefesh HaSichlis, the intellectual soul. It's not talking about the anthropomorphic shape, you know, having eyes and ears and nose and, uh, and a face and two arms and two legs because God obviously has no bodily image. It's talking about the nefesh asichlis, this intellectual soul that is able to make choices. Why is that not included in the Tanya? That's a great question. Why is that concept not included in Tanya? That is only a question that someone who learned Tanya before would ask. No, it's not a put down, but... No, but... Like you, tell, but you, you, you said that it's, it's not on time, you told us that, and yet you're telling us this is a vehicle for communication between the two souls. Right. So why wouldn't, yeah, I have the same question. So, and you're saying you haven't learned Tanya. No, I have. You have, right. Well, no, that's what I said. No, this is a question only someone who learned Tanya. Not because I know I'm familiar with Tanya, but because just listening, it doesn't make sense okay. that there wouldn't be this uh, explanation of the vehicle of communication between the two from what you're telling me. So let me tell you like this. Tanya doesn't talk about this soul, this intellectual soul, this philosophical soul. 
because the entire Tanya is written to this intellectual soul. When you study Tanya, what part of you is grasping the ideas and then applying them to mediating between godly soul and animal soul? So the truth is, the book doesn't have to tell you about that soul. The book is talking to that soul. Now the truth is, it's hinted to at the end of chapter 2. It calls it the interface that was installed on our soul. So it says that everything that comes in and everything that goes out, spiritually speaking, has to go through that filter. It doesn't give it a name, but the Tzemach Tzedek, who is the Altarebbe's grandson, the Altarebbe raised the Tzemach Tzedek because he was orphaned as a young man. So the Tzemach Tzedek clarifies in his writings that in the end of chapter 2, when it describes that interface, it's talking about that third soul. Okay. So, let's, let's get really practical, because I want to wrap up in the next two minutes, and we'll end the official class, and then we'll start the unofficial class, whatever that means. Um, let, let's, let's make sure we have a practical takeaway from this. You know the story about when Rivka was pregnant, and she was in so much pain after so many years of, of childlessness, and she goes to Shemra Eva and she asks what's going on. And he tells her, don't worry, um, it's twins. Hmm? You have two nations inside of you. And that comforts her. That comforts her. What's the background of that story? The background is that the Medrash tells us every time she would walk by the yeshiva Shemra Eva, she would feel stirring in her womb. And then she'd walk by a base of Edezoda, an idolatrous temple, and she'd feel stirring in her womb. And then she went to the prophet and he says, don't worry, it's two babies, twins. And then, oh, now everything's okay. She just found out that one of her babies is into idolatry. <laughs> the Al-Tareb is Mechutin, the Kedushas Levi, Levi Yitzchak explains like this. This is, this is the story of all of us. We walk by the yeshiva, the shul, the, shul, the, the tanishir. We get excited. Oh, this is good. Yiddishkeit, a lot. And then we leave the class. We walk down Central Avenue. And we see stuff that's antithetical to that. Oh, and we get excited about that. And we're like, what the heck is wrong with us? Who am I? This is so weird. How, how am I all over the place? This is not consistent. Am I crazy? Am I sick? And then you go to the guide, the spiritual guide. And he says, no, you're not crazy. You're totally normal. You're just pregnant with twins. <laughs> you have an animalistic drive, which is selfish, that is going to get excited about anything that enhances your existence. It's going to get excited about anything that's pleasurable, anything that's comfortable, anything that's physical and bodily related. That's one part of you. You have another drive, which is the opposite. It's altruistic, it's loving, it's selfless, it's at one with everyone and everything. You're not crazy, you're just pregnant with twins. So the first thing, remember we said the Alter is coaching us, we're going into a personal audience with the Alter Rebbe here. The first audience, pretend this was our first meeting today with the Alter Rebbe. First thing the Alter Rebbe revealed to us, and let's go back to what I asked you before, is Tanya chiefly instructional or informational? Instructional. instructional. But you know something? Even in, a, even in an instruction, you know, like the recipe we're talking about, what's the first thing in a recipe? Ingredients. Ingredients. Ingredients is not instructions. Ingredients is information. Because even in an instructional manual, you have to start with, what are we dealing with? So the first thing is a little bit of information. Before the Altrebic coaches us on any techniques, first he gives us a little information. Here are the ingredients. You have this drive called the animal soul. You have this drive called the godly soul. And, and like we said, it's hinted to, you have even this third drive called the intellectual or philosophical soul. Uh, that's what we're dealing with. Once you know what you're dealing with, okay, we don't yet have tools for it. We haven't gotten that far yet. We haven't been given, given tools how to deal with it. But it's like Rivka getting this news. There's relief just in understanding the nature of our condition, just in finding out you're not crazy. 
the fact that your, 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 your desires can fluctuate from one extreme to the other is not a lack of consistency in you. It's the product, it's the very logical outcome of having these two antithetical drives with which Hashem created you. And that there's a purpose for this conflict. And, and there's a goal in managing this conflict. And that step by step, we will learn methods, we will learn techniques for perfection behavioral perfection, how to manage the conflict, at least on a behavioral level. So internally, these twins will always be vying for control, but externally, with Hashem's help, we will be able to manage our behaviors so that only the godly soul is going to actually get to steer the vehicle. The animal soul will continue to be a backseat driver, but we can achieve behavioral perfection where only one soul is going to actually get to steer the vehicle. The analogy of Rifka Amino you know, into pregnancy, though, how was that a relief to her in the sense that she knew that her, that her children were going to struggle but ultimately would make the right decisions? Ah. Yaakov was a pure savage. So your question is, how was it a relief to her? Because even after she finds out, the relief of it's not one confused kid, it's two very consistent kids, but one of them is consistently bad. That's your question. So let me answer, then I want to let everyone go. Is Remember what we said about the animal soul? Remember what we said? He's not bad. He's hyper. He's energetic. He's a pleasure seeker. But he's not bad. He needs to be channeled. He needs to be harnessed. In fact, if you remember, that's what Yitzchak wanted for Esau. He saw that if Esau were channeled in the proper way, he had great potential. So even when you find out you have twins and one of them's an animal soul, don't write off the animal soul. In the end, when we really get this method of the 53 chapters, when we really get them nailed down and we're, we're, we're applying them in our lives, we keep the animal soul. The animal soul is pulling the cart. The godly soul sits in the cart and steers. The animal soul pulls the cart and he's the, he's the engine, he's the motor. But again, all this stuff will be taught to us Man, it's a shame through the. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. One second.